we found fundraising very difficult. A lot of founders do, um, you know, whether you're you're male or female identifying. But it was always we seem to be challenged a lot more so, and we seem to have a lot more questions. Even though we had much greater traction than a lot of male counterparts we saw in similar businesses that might have either come through EF or been on very similar journeys to us, that we had the benefit of being able to compare against. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Two Penceworth. This is a series where we hear all about the stories, the successes and the challenges of female founders in climate tech. This series is based on the fact that in 2022, for every one pound of VC money invested, less than two pence went to companies with female founding teams. I mean, that's shockingly low, right? And so through this series, I'm hoping to raise the profile and put a spotlight on the successes of some amazing female founders out there in the climate space. Um, that, you know, that that two pence worth are succeeding against the odds um, and to share the resources, the advice and the tips that they have for other female founders on their journeys. If you've missed any of our previous episodes in this series, we've had some amazing, inspiring, uplifting stories from some amazing women out there in climate. So please go and check those out, either in video form over on my LinkedIn profile or on our YouTube channel. Or you can listen to them in podcast audio format on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And today we are joined by Jade Cohen, co-founder and chief product officer of QFlow. Jade has spent her career in sustainability and environmental management within engineering, having worked for some huge, really well-renowned engineering consultancies and organisations, looking at fascinating issues such as water supply in Africa and lots of other things through through sort of construction and consulting engineering. And she founded QFlow in 2018 with her co-founder, Brittany Harris, with the aim to reduce waste during construction and in the construction sector. Their digital platform enables construction companies to track materials and waste data in real time to minimise waste through incorrect deliveries and through their logistics and supply chain. As a fully female-founded business in the construction sector, they are definitely in the minority, right? So I'm really fascinated to hear how this experience has been for them. And they're also in that two pence of every pound, having successfully closed a Series A raise of 7.2 million in May of this year, which is a huge achievement. So I'm sure there are loads of other founders out there listening that are going to want to hear more about how they got there and the advice that, that Jade has for others who are on that same journey. So Jade, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, yeah, just to kick off, are you happy to, to just give us a little bit more info, uh, info on what QFlow is all about? Talk us through the platform, how it works, who it's for and, and what it does. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you described it very well just now as well, actually. But the, the, the main principle behind QFlow is that it's a, a core technology product which is used on live construction sites or sort of office fit out, strip out type type sites as well where it's enabling users on site to actually track all the individual deliveries and material movements, as well as waste movements that are happening during those kind of day-to-day activities. The way that that's done is through a photograph that's taken via the Qflow mobile app of the actual paperwork that's delivered onto site with each vehicle that arrives and offloads certain goods. So this will give all the core information on the contents of those deliveries, so the materials, the products that are being delivered, who they've come from, where they've come from, the quantities, etc. And from that photograph, which is the only source of data input that the users on site will, will need to input, um, we'll then do the, the heavy lifting, so to speak, of extracting all of that text, all the information from those documents that our system is reading, 
and then present that kind of raw structured data back to those construction project teams uh, in the form of a, a web portal, which they can access from, from anywhere, um, from as many users on those projects as they want to. And what that means um, is that they can then take that kind of comprehensive data, that kind of digital record of all of these movements that have been happening on those projects and better understand those material and those waste flows, as well as the embodied carbon, which we calculate off the back of that as well. Now this obviously all goes to, towards um, helping them achieve some of their legal compliance or, or project requirements uh, and better understanding where those hotspots of carbon are actually coming from when it comes to those kind of scope three bulk materials on those sites. That's brilliant. And that's super smart doing that just through a photograph, because like on building sites, they're going to get that delivery. They're going to get literally a sort of paper slip with the delivery and that's it. Right. And you're kind of minimizing the need for them to go and input data and, you know, type it all in literally through a photograph. That's it. It's done. It's captured. That's brilliant. Exactly. And I think this is we have to remember as well that construction is the second most under digitalized sector out there, apart from hunting, which is the famous statistic that everybody in construction tech loves to throw around. And it's it's terrible because it's such a, a fantastic problem solving sector, but it has a real challenge with, you know, getting access to you know clean structured data and information that it can use to improve itself. And you know, that was one of the reasons we we set QFL up in the way that we did was you know, we put the technology burden on ourselves and our technology to, um, you know, to extract all this information on behalf of our users. So all, the only thing they had to worry about was taking that photograph. So the simplicity behind it is, is really important for any any um, product or technology working construction as a whole. Yeah, I love that. And also it's a, it's a massive win-win for them because I would imagine with the waste, not only is it a, a problem from a kind of embodied carbon and an environmental perspective, but also it's a massive cost burden for them, right? If they're getting the wrong quantities of things or the wrong product and then having to re-deliver. So it's that lovely win-win of actually, we're going to save you loads of money and make this more efficient for you. Oh, and also it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a benefit sustainability-wise. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And it's it's funny because when we first got started out, we, we kind of considered ourselves as almost sneaky sustainability because the yeah. core value proposition wasn't you're going to be greener, you're going to be you know less carbon intensive. And whilst those value streams have definitely gained in traction over the years because of legislation and changing requirements from, from the customer base, actually one of the key early value adds was just in terms of basic efficiencies and not wasting money. We're in a sector which struggles to make even 1% margins in a lot of cases and we're wasting 13% of materials coming onto sites which go directly into skips without even ever being used. So, you know, you've got a huge amount of um, cost savings involved with tracking this process much more efficiently, let alone the gains they're gonna get in terms of minimizing waste and ensuring future recovery of materials and yeah. contributing to, to the circular economy. Yeah, amazing. I like that sneaky sustainability. That's a good one. <laughs> I like it. So talk me through how, how you founded the business then. Where did you meet Brittany, your co-founder? It was 2018, wasn't it, that, that, that the business was founded? So talk me through that journey, where the idea came from and, and how you got it off the ground. Of course, yeah. So me and Britt met originally uh, sort of prior to when we started QFlow, which was back in 2016. And funnily, we actually met in New York, funnily enough. So it was a kind of... Um, we were thinking of it as being sort of two Brits abroad, not on holidays in this sense, but actually we were part of a charity that was working towards the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 SDGs, for anybody that's familiar with that. And it was a, as a charity programme that aimed to bring about 300 individuals from all corners of the world together in New York for a couple of weeks to work on action plans that we could then contribute back in our own kind of uh, home countries, so to speak around achieving these goals and both myself and Brittany were part of goal number six which was clean water and sanitation and so we were working with about 20 or so other individuals 
um, all in these different action plans. And it was a fantastic experience, um, very intense experience for a couple of weeks. And it, it resulted in us um, sort of pitching one of the concepts we had for a new charity um, over in the UN headquarters at the end of that program. And during this time, me and Brett had become quite close anyway. I think you know, naturally there's, there's a lot of cultural overlap, but we're also sort of both working in this sector. I was working on the construction side in sustainable management and Britt was working in civil engineering um, and design and, and structural engineering. And so there's some compatibility there in terms of the way we were looking at the sector and noticing the gap between design and construction in terms of what we think we're going to build and what we build in reality. So we stayed in touch over the years and, and thought about a few different concepts. And then we eventually uh, sort of submitted an idea initially to the Royal Academy of Engineering in London. And this is for an open innovation competition, one of the launchpad competitions, if anybody's heard of them previously listening to this. And then we went through the competition. We kind of started piecing together parts of the business model and the general idea as we went along. It wasn't as if we had a fully founded idea to begin with, but we had a core challenge and problem that we wanted to fix around data um, and a specific sector that we had experience in that we wanted to fix it for. So we went through this program. We, we came second place as runners up. And then from that, we actually joined Entrepreneur First, which is a tech accelerator um, with their initial base in London at the time as part of their cohorts. And that's when we started working on the idea full time together. And actually, it's, we might, might come on to it later, but that was one of the key um, uh, key milestones for myself and Brit in terms of getting the support and, um, I guess, knowledge in terms of how to run a business, let alone a VC-backed business, very early days when we'd had no prior exposure to business or, or you know, any any kind of similar sector up until that point. Yeah, amazing. And, and it sounds like that project that you did as part of the charity thing in New York was was a sort of test, taster of what it would be like to work together, I guess, because you're problem solving, coming up with an idea, you're, you're working on a mini project, which I suppose showed that you had that co-founder compatibility really early on, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, with any co-founding relationship, whether you know somebody really well in advance or whether you're just kind of meeting them um, from day one, which is kind of the EF model, um, similar to, to Y Combinator. And because we'd had that experience and that really, as I mentioned, intense experience together, um, it, it it kind of allowed us to have a very uh, like pragmatic relationship, I would say. Like we've been very close as individuals anyway and, and grown closer over the years, but we always had a very core mission and uh, goal in mind, which was, in our case, to make construction more sustainable and ultimately to leave the world in a better place than when we found it, which I think is a mission that most people can really align to. But for us, it was always about that end goal. And so the means of getting there and what we had to do to achieve that was never really a cause for question or concern or there weren't any egos involved in that. And because we had that kind of relationship and that that consistency of our vision that was very shared, it meant that we were able to have a very productive co-founding relationship as, as any any members should if they're looking to set out a business after that point as well yeah absolutely so so when you went into eFirst was the time when you both kind of left your full-time jobs and went into it full-time and how long were you in eFirst for how long was that process and what did you go through in that time that you were in that in there yeah so so within EF or Entrepreneur First we were there for the entire program if I remember correctly was about six months so you had a three months initial stint um, and the reason we were able to do that full time was because EF were very kind to provide a stipend for that period of time. So that helped an awful lot in terms of you know not having to worry about the things like rent and, and keeping yourself going in the meantime. And then you pitch for what they call kind of pre-seed investment. So this is a, a, a sort of a decent chunk of money, but not not to sort of seed, seed level. I think at the time it was about £80,000 that you were pitching for as part of a panel. 
And if you manage to make it through to gain the pre-seed investment at the three-month mark, then you'd obviously kind of go through to the next three months where you'd then pitch for a seed investment um, or, you know, get to the final pitch at demo day is what they called it, um, before then looking to raise a round after that point if that's what you wanted to do. And that's what allowed us, that initial injection of capital is what allowed us to start building out the initial team around us. Bear in mind that despite building an AI-based company, which is what the core technology stack with MQflow is, you know, neither one of myself nor Brittany come from a background in technology or AI specifically. So we needed to make sure that we had capital and, um, and you know, the right people around us to help support with this overall vision. Yeah, absolutely. And how, and how much did the idea evolve, adapt or change throughout that kind of six months in, in EFIRST? Did you kind of stick to the core principles the whole way through or did it kind of pivot drastically during that time? Yeah, I mean, it changed quite a lot. There's a huge amount from um, from day one, from the Royal Academy's time um, up until EF when when the whole concept changed. I mean, originally we were, and actually the name behind Qflow or Qualisflow, as our trading name is, was around uh, water quality monitoring and, and checking for, um, for differences and high risk areas of potential contamination. And then it kind of evolved to more holistic environmental monitoring across different sites, which included things like air quality, vibration, noise, as well as waste and materials. But we kind of honed in on tracking specifically waste and material movements because this was the one of the core headaches that a lot of teams that we were working with at the time had. And it was also the biggest contributor to scope three carbon emissions, which, again, has only been gaining attraction internationally as well as within the UK over recent years. And if we could crack that problem, then we had a much better chance of having a even bigger impact globally when it comes to decarbonisation. So that's kind of how we ended up narrowing focus to those those kind of core data points. Amazing. And then at what point did you bring in that kind of technology resource? Was that straight from getting that initial pre-seed funding or was that a little bit later on that you brought people in to actually build the platform itself? Yeah, so we, we had we'd kind of hacked together a bit of a, a sort of working prototype up until the point of getting pre-seed investment. And that was just through our, our own um kind of messing around so to speak and playing around with different like online databases and um all the rest of it to, to piece something together and that that allowed us to kind of prove the concept which which gave us sort of unlocked the the initials pre-seed investment and then it, it was it was at that stage as you're mentioning um where we secured that eighty thousand pounds um investment where we started bringing in a team around us so we brought in a, a cto to work alongside myself and brit and then um some software developers into the team initially and then started building out the team after that point and obviously accelerated that once we then gained our initial seed round investment in 2019. Amazing. And then what what was your sort of journey then from seed to series A? Because obviously you successfully closed your series A in May of this year. And there are a lot of the founders that I speak to are at that point, right, where they're approaching series A and the, all of the challenges that come around how you're commercializing and getting that product market fit and and all of that kind of thing so yeah talk, talk me through that that next piece of the journey then and how you got to that series a what were your key milestones and markers that you needed to hit to get there and how'd you do it yeah absolutely and it's, it's almost uh, it's easy to say in hindsight i guess but it is i guess one of the most important chapters of that whole journey because it's you know every day is a bit make or break but particularly between seed and series a you're kind of you know, proving proving what you set out to do in terms of the initial value add and, and what that means for traction and the wider market that you're servicing. So, um, for us, it was it was it was it's a tough journey for anybody. I think for anybody who's kind of going through this chapter over the last couple of years, obviously you've had COVID, you've had um, yeah, in, 
at a geopolitical level as well. We've had you know the war in Ukraine, which has impacted supply chains and you know massively impacted our sector, amongst many others, um, as well as you know massive inflation rates and everything else. So th there's been a combination of factors over the last couple of years, in particular, which has made it really tough for for companies as a whole, let alone founders who are going through sort of C to Series A round. Yeah. At the same time, as with all uh, challenges in, in the wider market, there are also many opportunities and you, you've seen companies that have pivoted around this over time. Um, and it's something that we've been keeping a, a close eye on as well. And actually for us, the, the focus on technology uptake within construction has been supported by the move to more remote working. It's made it more imperative as well, especially with the declining workforce because yeah. of Brexit on top of that yeah. um, within construction. Um, and also because of the uh, the price rises of, of basic raw materials has actually supported the concept of the circular economy and uh, the importance behind uh, better tracking of these resources and not to waste them. So a lot of things have kind of um, lent themselves in our favour alongside the wider macroeconomics of you know companies uh, not doing as well, construction companies this is, over the last couple of years. So we've kind of had to navigate that in part. We've had to adjust our value proposition, our messaging um, a lot over the last couple of years. We've also tested out a few different Kind of models in terms of how we license the product as well um and it was one of the key determining factors for us in terms of you know when we go into the fundraise for series a at what time do we do that how much do we raise and what are we really going to be using those funds for and what we've landed on is a strategy where we're looking at testing international expansion particularly in the us side at the moment so we're, we're kind of dipping our toe in the water so to speak and if we get more traction we'll look at exploring that in more depth coming up but we're also looking at deepening parts of our product development to capitalise on these new opportunities around the circular economy, what this means for the built environment to mine the, the existing built or urban environment as opposed to the natural environment for some of those core materials that we're going to need moving forwards. So that's that's kind of been, that's all of those factors have really led us to the strategy that we're and the pathway that we're on today, but certainly a difficult market to navigate when you've got all these different competing factors um, alongside then the need to fundraise as well yeah absolutely so it sounds like you yeah despite a lot of headwinds <laughs> some of which blew in your favor um you've yeah you've, you've managed to do very well to, to to close that and yeah what is undoubtedly a really difficult market for fundraising for sure okay amazing and what where does that kind of leave you now then you've got that money you mentioned there a little bit about international experience and and, and looking at the us as a potential market um what what does this series a unlock for you in terms of what, what you can do next? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, as you mentioned there, the international piece is, is certainly a big part of this. And one thing we were keen to do is to start looking at those different markets that are all suffering from the same problems we experienced in the UK, but just mm -hmm. in, in slightly in slightly different ways. So we're already working with a few sites over in Australia. We've worked with a couple of, of sites in the US and we wanted to use this Series A to start testing the waters in the US a little bit further. Yeah. Obviously, anybody who's moved or, or worked in the US previously might know that you know each state or you know operates pretty independently. So there's a there's a big difference there in terms of where you enter those markets. But because of some of the leg legislation and changes that that Biden's been putting through over the last couple of years, there's been a lot that's kind of working towards a greater focus on decarbonisation, for example. And being the first movers into this space um, could support us when this gains much greater traction in a couple of years' time. To, to really expand into that market, which is part of the logic behind that. So that's kind of the first piece is just testing out those waters and seeing what we can learn from the right product market fit. And is now the right time, whereas a couple of years, the right time for us to really explore that in more depth. And then the second piece was, as I mentioned, around looking at the, the product expansion and, and deepening our expertise in terms of not just having collectible data and using that to support 
day-to-day um, -day reporting and efficiency gains from decarbonisation, but actually now using this data to inform greater levels of insights and feeding back into the circular economy for materials that are potentially going to be up for recovery in a couple of years' time. Amazing. Oh, very exciting. Fantastic. I look to see, look forward to seeing how that develops over the next sort of six months to a year. Exciting. Thank you. And um, talk, tell me a bit about the kind of journey, because obviously there's no getting away from the fact that two, well, first of all, a fully female founded business, sadly, unusual, fully female founded business in the construction tech business in the construction sector. There's lots of layers there, right? Of I suppose you'd call it intersectionality or that Venn diagram means that you are quite an outlier sadly right but but you guys are so talk me through what that journey has been like for you have you found that and have you felt that as you've gone through that journey do you feel that you've had um more challenges or more adversity to overcome or or not what what, what sort of your and Brit's experience of that yeah it's a really interesting question and I could definitely spend hours on this so I'll, I'll try and kind of like keep to the key <laughs> points here um because everybody's journey is going to be going to be different as well right but I think it's funny because it's only really in hindsight when we've looked back at certain pivotal points in terms of QFlow's evolution and the, the journey we've been on so far that you kind of realise actually there, there's still, you know, there are still barriers that are slightly higher to get over if you're a female founded company than, than perhaps our male counterparts might experience. And you see that most prominently in fundraising, um, a particularly challenging sector, and we could spend ages talking about that. But, you know, for us, it was always the, the lack of, and this is, this is from... The different stages of fundraising so we've noticed not significant changes between sort of pre-seed seed um series a so far where there's just a there's an initial or there seems to be an initial lack of believability that investors might have in us as opposed to if we looked and sounded different and i think that this is where subconscious bias really comes into play and it's such a hard thing to measure and a hard thing to tackle because it's subconscious like there's there's very few people out there in the world today particularly in this space that are consciously um trying to create additional barriers for female founders um at the same time that doesn't mean that we should accept that that's still the case and you know it, we found fundraising very difficult a lot of founders do um you know whether you're you're male or female identifying but it was always we seem to be challenged a lot more so and we seem to have a lot more questions even though we had much greater traction than a lot of male counterparts we saw in similar businesses that might have either come through ef or been on very similar journeys to us that we had the benefit of being able to compare against um and so that made it quite difficult we had we had to bring in additional support from our advisors who were um older you know more life experienced male advisors onto certain calls to support with fundraising efforts because they were more believable than we were so if they're backing us then that gives us more credibility so it was just it was those kind of in in isolation slightly small things that kind of when you start to add up actually creates that kind of additional hurdle and it's funny because we've never really had a challenge when it comes to, to sales and working within the sector because we've got the experience or had the experience prior to starting QFlow of working in this space we knew the language we knew the problem space and that resonated with our clients so despite construction itself being um you know still with its own challenges in terms of gender diversity and and the age gap and everything else is one we never really found that as challenging as we did within the fundraising space which is a whole new kind of environment we were new to it anyway so we had to learn ourselves along the way but we found the barriers to entry much higher in um in the vc world than we were perhaps expecting up front that is so interesting. And the fact that, like you said, it sort of seems like they were there was a higher level of 
scepticism, I suppose, that you had to overcome from the outset. Yeah. Yeah. You have to remember that's normal as well, right? Like I'd be skeptical if I was them in terms of like being new founders who hadn't done this before. Like that's, that's a really legitimate form of skepticism. But when that starts to be clouded with, do I believe, does this person look and sound like somebody who's going to be successful? You know, we don't look and sound like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or other characters, these typically <laughs> CZ stereotypes. And we don't want to embody those people because we, we operate and lead in a very different kind of way, um, as do most women as a whole. So it's kind of it's trying to break down that perception of what is what is the kind of gold standard of entrepreneurship versus who we are as individuals and being authentic to that. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that, I mean, obviously the, the career path that you came through working in sort of consulting engineering environments, which are very typically male dominated, did you did you feel in the minority throughout other parts of your career? And do you think your experience within that gave you a sort of inner resilience to then deal with the sort of adversity that you've experienced as a female founder? It's an interesting question, that, because I haven't really thought about it before, but I, I, I guess you know, thinking about it now, to some degree, yes, I think that would have helped. Um, I think, you know, like you said, it's, it's construction as a whole and engineering are pretty male-dominated sectors. There's a, there's a lot of structure and hierarchy and ways of behaving that you, would, you wouldn't necessarily expect in other spaces that maybe gave a little bit of extra resilience. But I think for us, when we talk about resilience, at least between myself and Britt, we've always, it's always come back to this core principle of like, why are we doing what we're doing? Like, why are we going through these hurdles? Why are we trying to to run this race or whatever else it is and the reason comes back to that core mission as a business which was we wanted to leave this world in a better place when we found it and I know it sounds cheesy I know it sounds corny but that fundamentally has kept us going throughout thick or thin because whether it's challenges in fundraising whether it's you know wanting to secure this sale which is going to be pivotal as part of a wider strategy or something else like the ability to be able to have that that shared um reason why as to why we're doing this together and to be able to like work through any kind of adversity as part of that and also having a co-founder as a whole I think I've full respect for anybody any founders let alone solo founders in particular because it's a really tough journey (laughs) and if you're going on it by yourself it's even even more more difficult right so I think I think it's always been like that that core mission and reason as to why we're doing things that has kept us going and has built up the resilience um, irrespective of our previous backgrounds whether they're male dominated or not yeah absolutely yeah just just knowing that what you're working on is bigger than you yeah exactly yeah yeah absolutely I like that thank you um and in terms of advice that you would have for other female founders that are either aspiring and about to start out on their journey or perhaps you know are just a little bit behind you at that pre-seed seed level um what what I mean in terms of that seed to series a journey would you have any kind of one or two core bits first of all before we go into the quick fire bit have you got any core bits of advice for anyone at that point of the journey that, that are key takeaways yeah, I think for one thing I'd say to others is, is the, the the biggest learning experience I think that I've had over the last couple of years as part of this latter part of the journey is like really understand and own your leadership style, particularly as women, because leadership styles and stereotypes for what a good leader or a CEO is or or founder will be very different for men. Be very different for everybody. Everybody's their own individual person, but you know, the sorts of things that we get told and have expectations on in terms of the way we lead and how aggressive we are or what aggressive even means as a woman compared to a man is very different. And it took myself and both myself and Britt to a certain extent, actually, a, a while to really understand and, you know, identify what our leadership style is, but also then own it. So, you know, lean into the advantages that women typically have and, you know, see as, you know, things like empathy, for example, 
And actually, that is a, a huge skill, uh, a massive advantage to use in the right way and should not be underestimated, which it typically is in, in other forms of leadership. So actually, you know, lean into that part of your superpower and know how to leverage that because that is going to be your edge. And I think it's, you know, being able to differentiate who you are and what your own authentic leadership style is and the real benefits and advantages to that, as opposed to the stereotype that you might see in other places, is going to serve you well as a founder, but also I think in, in, in general day-to-day life as well. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And we always round out these episodes by giving some kind of quick fire recommendations, right, for, for, for other founders out there. So the first one being what people-based resource would you say helped you most on your journey? So that could be a network, an organization, a community, but yeah, what people-based resource would you recommend others seek out and have a look at? Yeah, that's a good Another question. So for us, if I mean, it might not be applicable to some listeners who are later in the journey, but if you're starting out, then Entrepreneur First was a, a massive, uh, massively helpful resource for us to get started. Uh, more recently in our sector, in particular, UK Green Building Council has been a great networking community of other founders, but also the wider membership of corporates in, in the built environment as well. So those are two fantastic ones. And then anybody involved in um, sort of geospatial data, like look at geovation, which is from the audience survey in the UK, they're, they're a fantastic network of individuals as well. Amazing. So that's Entrepreneur First, UK Green Building Council and Geovation. Yeah. Amazing, yeah. thank you. And then what media-based resource would you recommend? So that could be a book, a podcast, a TED Talk, anything media-based? Yeah, so I'm going to, I've actually got it right here. So if anybody who's listening, it's, um, it's a book called Multipliers. You can't really see it on the screen actually, but it's, um, it's by Liz Wiseman. And it's around, it's a book on leadership in particular. So a lot of our senior leadership team are reading this book at the moment. Um, and it's talking about this idea of being a multiplier or being a diminisher in terms of leading teams and what that means for yourself as an individual, but also the team of leaders that you're also leading. So I highly recommend to anybody who's who's got a, a team of, I'd say, at least sort of 10 people plus. But for anybody, really, it's a really interesting book that I'd highly recommend. So it's called Multipliers, which is the, the title of the book. Fascinating. Thank you. And it's that sort of about how you can make people better versions of themselves. It's about that kind of growth mindset scale, scaling and growing thing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's about how do you get the most out of people around you and have the multiplier effect as opposed to have people around you. You know, most people day to day, it's kind of built with this principle that in a sort of a day to day job, you know, people are usually utilized at 60 to 70 percent max. And actually, the best people or the best leaders around those individuals or those teams can get 110%, which sounds impossible. But the idea is that actually people will be able to stretch themselves and have greater fulfillment in what they're doing day to day if you're surrounded by a multiplier as opposed to a diminisher. So it's quite it's quite interesting. Yeah, I, this podcast is really growing my reading list. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, I bet. <laughs> Josephine Bromley recommended me the personal MBA and I'm really enjoying that as well so yeah nice nice (laughs) thank you and then the final question um is who which business role model do you most look up to and it it could be somebody in climate it could be somebody just generally in the business or commercial world but yeah who who do you look up to yeah it's a really it's a really good question that and I'm going to sort of divide the answer just based on some recent experiences that we've been having um it's it might be a bit of a biased answer, but actually my co-founder Britt is somebody I personally look up to an awful lot. Obviously, we've oh, gone on this journey nice. together, but it's, um, yeah, uh, Britt is a perfect example of a multiplier around her um, that I think most people would resonate with uh, alongside myself. Um, but there's a, another woman who we've been coming into contact with more recently, not in the climate space in particular, but um, Adelina Chalmers 
is a name she's um goes by the name the geek whisperer which i love and she's worked with a lot of technology leads and um and ctos and she's been a massive support for us in in lots of ways across the business and with certain individuals and the team as well so anybody who who wants some support in that area from a technology-based perspective um she's a fantastic person to connect with amazing i follow her on linkedin and i absolutely yeah. love her content yeah i think she's fantastic yeah nice oh great thank you so much for that jade i really appreciate you taking the time to to tell us all about that journey that you've been on and your experiences and share your advice that's you know it's really fascinating and i'm sure will be hugely valuable to to everyone who's been listening so thank you so much for that no thank you for having me appreciate it and thanks to everybody for listening um Thank you for sticking with us through this series so far. We've had some amazing episodes and there are more coming. So we've got, I think, another three episodes coming over the next couple of weeks. Um, So watch this space, come back and join us. But for now, thank you to Jade and have a great afternoon, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please follow the show to be noted of all future episodes. We've also saved videos of all of our interviews over on the Above and Beyond YouTube channel. Check out the show notes to find the links to this and links to all of the resources mentioned on today's show.